Welcome to The Mushroom Show, the one place where you need to be if you want to stay on top of all the cool things happening in the world of mushrooms. In this episode, we're going to be kicking off morel season by unwinding a decades-old mystery as to the potential cultivation of this finicky mushroom. We're also going to be sitting down with the two co-chairs of the Mushroom Summit, which is a super cool mushroom conference that's coming up in June. And finally, we're going to be keeping you up to date on all the cool stuff happening in the mushroom news. Now, if you like mushrooms, if you like the Mushroom Show, it would mean the world to me if you go ahead and hit that like button. It really helps get the show out to more people. And if you want to see future episodes of the show, make sure you hit that subscribe button as well. It really helps the channel grow. Let's jump right into the show. Mycotechnology is pretty cool, and I have no doubt that it is gonna change the world. This is things like using mycelium or different mushroom technologies to make water filters and new packaging materials and clean up oil spills and even use mycelium to make leather and everything in between. So I'm always on the lookout for this kind of stuff, which is why I got pretty excited when I saw this article come across my feed and it says, Mycelium, leather made of fungi can self-repair. Now this idea of mycelium leather is nothing new. It's basically the idea that you grow mushroom mycelium and then you can press it out, you can treat it and then dye it and basically turn it into this kind of faux leather. But typically that process of turning mycelium into a leather type material actually kills the mycelium because of course you wouldn't want mushrooms growing out from your new leather couch. But wouldn't it be cool if that leather could be made without killing the mycelium or without at least destroying the mycelium's ability to grow again. Well, that's basically what was discovered by researchers in the UK in a newly published study. So in this article, here it says, basically the headline is, normally if a jacket rips, you'd either need to repair it or eventually replace it, but what if the jacket could repair itself? Which is a pretty wild concept, but if you look down here at the images from this study, you can see this is the mycelium leather that they made. So again, you just take mycelium and you press it and you turn it into what is very close to a leather-like material. But what the researchers did was they poked holes all over the leather and then soaked the leather in this liquid and found that the mycelium was able to regrow and basically repair itself. So the key insight here and what they figured out is that you can actually make this leather without destroying the chlamydospores or basically the little nodules on the end of the mycelium that are able to regrow and start to regenerate mycelium. I'm trying to imagine the actual use case for this, like if anybody actually would ever need a leather jacket that self repairs, and if this could ever be you know, brought into production in any way. But still, it is kind of cool, as always, to think about the possibilities about how mushrooms are gonna be able to make our lives better in the future. On to our next story. Now, the idea of psilocybin mushrooms for mental health is starting to become a lot more accepted. Even though it was a topic that was pretty taboo not even that long ago, more and more people are opening up to this idea. And quite frankly, it's almost becoming old news at this point. We've talked about it a lot on this show. Still, some people are quite new to the concept and for the most part the mainstream hasn't really picked up on it. But that might be starting to change soon as well-known athletes are starting to become more open about their healing journeys with psilocybin mushrooms. There was a massive article posted on ESPN about this very topic and it's not your typical boilerplate psilocybin mushrooms for mental health article. It's a very in-depth look at the different ways that these mushrooms are being used and how specific athletes are using them and kind of talks all about their 
their healing journeys. Now, I'm not going to go read through the whole article because, like I said, it's very long and very in-depth, but I did want to highlight a couple of points. So right here, as we scroll down, there's Riley Cote. He is an ex-NHLer who is kind of an enforcer, a guy that used to like punch people in the face a lot and probably get punched in the face a lot and probably has a lot of uh, potentially concussion issues and other issues that he's found he's really benefited from not only functional mushrooms, but obviously psilocybin mushrooms. But it does say here in the article, for years, whispers have circulated about an underground network of athletes, primarily ex-athletes, using psilocybin, the compound in magic mushrooms, to treat traumatic brain injuries, anxiety, and depression. Many of them, like Kote, view psychedelics as a miracle cure, the only thing they've been able to find that could help break a cycle of pharmaceutical painkillers and substance abuse. Now this word miracle cure, obviously these things aren't a silver bullet, but the other thing I wanted to highlight here is that obviously it's not just athletes or ex-athletes, right? It's normal everyday people that are starting to discover this or starting to at least question whether or not there's potential for psilocybin mushrooms to help with things like brain injuries, anxiety, and depression, like they say in the article. But to see big outlets like ESPN and well-known athletes starting to come forward and talk about this stuff means we are probably still in the early innings of a huge wave of discovery for the potential of these kind of medicines. Now, as part of this, they also filmed a mini documentary called Peace of Mind, which basically follows some of these athletes to Jamaica as they go through some of these experiences and does a bunch of interviews with them. So you should definitely check that out if you feel so inclined. Spring is finally here, which for any mushroom lover means it's time to start getting excited about one of the most famous mushrooms of them all, the early riser, the delectable edible, the genus Morcella, or a variety of species collectively known as morels. Now, one thing I've always wondered is if people actually like morels that much, or if it's just because they're the first ones to show up and they're only around for a few short weeks, and you know, they are pretty famous, and yeah, sure, they are pretty tasty as a good edible, but they really seem to outpunch their weight class in terms of the amount of praise that they get in the wild mushroom world. And fresh specimens can fetch a hefty price, anywhere between five to $25 a pound. People will dedicate a lot of time to finding these mushrooms, pouring over burn maps, scouting out different areas, and then eventually battling through the bushes and through all the bugs to find them. But it might very well be worth it. According to my good friend, Eric over at Untamed Feast, who knows a lot about wild mushroom hunting, he says that good pickers can pick anywhere up to about 100 pounds of fresh morels per day. Again, considering they can go all the way up to $25 per pound fresh, that's not a bad day. But what if you didn't have to hunt morel mushrooms in the wild? What if you could just grow them instead? Most people think that's impossible. And there was often a saying that whoever figures out how to grow morels is going to be a millionaire because surely it would be quite lucrative. But what if I told you that somebody actually did figure out how to grow morels and published the method way back in 1982 and that the process was actually patented in 1986, but the inventor was tragically murdered weeks before the patent was granted. And for some reason, one of the largest pizza companies in the US actually bought the rights to the patent and started cultivating morels in the early 90s. Since I haven't had the chance to go out and hunt wild morel mushrooms yet this year, I did have the chance to dig in a little bit on the moral of the story, I mean, the story of the morel, and I wanted to share that here with you on the show. First of all, I think it makes sense to try and explain why morels are so hard to grow in the first place. We can grow button mushrooms and oysters and shiitake and lion's mane, so what makes morels so special? 
Well, the answer is that they have a complex life cycle. In fact, no one really knows 100% for sure how it works in the wild even to this day, but the best guess is something like this. Instead of going from spore to mycelium to fruiting body, morels have a secondary interim structure called a sclerotia. The point of this thing is basically to hold on to nutrients and help the organism survive over winter through forest fires and other treacherous conditions. So once a sclerotia is formed, it can either continue its life cycle and turn into a fruiting body, or it can just revert back into making mycelium, skipping the mushroom forming stage altogether. So to get it to go from sclerotia to fruiting body needs the perfect combination of humidity, soil temperature, air movement, and absolutely critical, the amount of nutrients it has access to at a specific time. Again, moral cultivation, since it could be quite lucrative, has been attempted for a very long time, and there's even reports of this happening as far back as the 1880s. But these are kind of hard to prove. I think more likely what happened is people stumbled upon morels growing in an apple orchard and just said, hey, look, you know, I grew these. I can grow mushrooms. But in 1982, Ronald D. Ower, who was a student at San Francisco University, published a paper in Mycologica outlining the process for growing morels in an indoor growth chamber. The details in the paper are pretty vague. It's more so just describing the experience of watching morels grow, more so than the detailed outline of actually how to do it. But still, this was the first real published description of how it could be done, showing that it could be done, and it was groundbreaking at the time. What Ower figured out is that the way to induce fruiting is to use exogenous nutrition. Exogenous just meaning outside of the substrate. So it can be added at one point, but then removed at a specific time. The process the process is a little complicated, but basically what Ower discovered is that you can spawn a bed of substrate with morel spawn or morel sclerotia spawn, and that mycelium will grow throughout the substrate, and then you can take a container of nutrition, like imagine some sterilized grain or something, this exogenous nutrition, and put it on top of the substrate bed. This will cause the morel mycelium to go into that container and grab some of those nutrients and then bring that back out to the sclerotia. But when you remove that exogenous nutrition, all of a sudden the morel freaks out and says, hey, we lost that nutrition, we need to reproduce. Because at the end of the day, mushrooms like to reproduce when they think it's kind of a last ditch effort to continue propagating the species. So a lot of times for mushrooms that grow in the wild, this will be like a cold snap or something like that. That's why mushrooms like to grow in the fall. But for morel mushrooms, this is when this nutrition is all of a sudden removed. Now, after this discovery, thinking it was sure to be lucrative, Ower was convinced to go work on this technology with two other scientists, Gary Mills and James Malachowski in Michigan. With funding from the Neogen Corporation in Michigan, they worked on the method and eventually filed a patent for the cultivation of Morcella in 1986. Unfortunately, Ower was murdered in San Francisco in 1986, just weeks before the patent was granted. The murder was unrelated to morels or unrelated to the patent, but still obviously tragic. I did manage to find an article from 1986 when this was first patented, and it says, scientists patent process permitting commercial morel production. And a couple things I found interesting. First of all, they were definitely very excited about this discovery. It says, this is a completely new technology. We're able to produce the morel almost at will. When research started, the process of farming morels was like making gold from lead, almost as far-fetched, or almost that far-fetched, according to some people. Malachowski even goes on to compare it to the invention of the light bulb, saying no one has ever been able to do this before. And yeah, of course, this could be quite lucrative, right? And I can see why they'd be 
uh, pretty excited from a business perspective because they're taking a mushroom that could previously only be found in the wild for a very short season and be able to grow that year round at will. Pretty exciting. And they do mention pizza, funny enough, saying here that morels are more expensive than the button mushrooms that pop up between the peppers and pepperoni on pizza. About $20 a pound wholesale instead of only $1 a pound. But the other thing I found interesting is that they just kind of gloss over Ower's involvement in the process, saying, a crucial step in developing the morel growing process was discovered by San Francisco scientist Ronald Ower, who painstakingly documented the life of the wild morel and first reproduced it in 1980. Mills and Malachowski picked it up from there. So it seems like they did gloss over a lot of maybe important information in terms of like how this process was actually developed and who's all involved, but still interesting to see how this all shook out. Speaking of pizza, the rights to this patent were actually purchased by Domino's Pizza, and they did start cultivating morels in Michigan in the early 90s. At the time, Domino's held the only North American license to the process, so according to them, they don't have to worry about any Tom, Dick, and Harry coming in with this. Well, as it turns out, Tom, Dick, and Harry probably would have had a tough time growing morel mushrooms successfully anyways, even if they didn't have to worry about patent infringement because many people all over the world have tried to replicate this process step by step using the exact process outlined in the patent and haven't really had any success on a commercial level. Domino's Pizza ended up selling the rights to the patent to a farm in Alabama, Terry Farms, who actually did make a go of growing morel mushrooms. They were apparently growing as much as 1,400 pounds per week, but because of financial issues and other difficulties, they ended up having to shut down the entire operation in 1999. Some people say that they were actually spending a ton of money fighting others for patent infringement, and that's one of the reasons why they were upside down on their morel mushroom growing operation. The last crack at the dream of morel cultivation in the US seems to be in the mid-2000s again in Michigan. Gary Mills was growing them with another company, Gourmet Mushrooms Inc., and apparently it was quite profitable at first, but a major bacterial contamination and other issues caused the farm to finally shut down for good in 2008. Now I do find it pretty interesting that even though there's a well-described process and really smart people have been trying to do this for years and there definitely is a market for fresh morel mushrooms, nobody has been able to successfully cultivate morels on a commercial scale even after almost half a century of trying but that might be starting to change. That's because of biologist Jacob and Karsten Kirk, twins from Copenhagen, who have been trying to figure out how to grow morels commercially for quite a while, since the early 1970s. Apparently they tried for a long time to replicate the original patents, but just like many others, they had no success, forcing them to almost give up on the dream. But they did finally have their first success with an outdoor grow in 2004, and then put all their efforts into replicating that success indoors. That led to their first indoor success in 2005, where they were able to grow a measly 0.35 kilograms in a square meter, which is not a great yield for what they're trying to do, but still, it was a pretty huge success. They continued to work on the process, and in 2021, they announced that they have basically discovered how to grow them commercially. And even though they haven't disclosed their methods, they're actually quite secretive about it. Apparently only four people in the entire world, including the two brothers, know how it's actually done. It really does look like from the pictures and videos that they have figured it out. The videos they have posted show tons of morels being harvested, and it really is quite visually pleasing just to see these morels growing in the grass, which according to the brothers is pretty important for the 
the cultivation. It helps to balance the ecology. Also, the specific strain that is grown apparently has a very large impact because not all strains of morels want to grow and they need to be able to develop wild strains and play around and test with them until they have found ones that grow well using these methods. So who knows where we go from here? Who knows if the morel saga continues, if the Kirk brothers will share their methods or start to commercialize the process, or even perhaps someone who's watching or listening to this right now has figured it out and you're secretly growing morel mushrooms right now. Either way, I'm excited to see how this continues to develop, but even though I haven't figured out how to grow them yet, I'm still excited to go into the woods in the spring and get them the old-fashioned way. On to the next segment. Now, mushrooms are getting more and more popular with each passing day. It wasn't even that long ago where something like the mushroom show would have seemed like a crazy idea, but now more and more people are interested in not just psilocybin mushrooms, but also gourmet mushrooms and of course, functional mushrooms. In fact, so much so that there is gonna be an entire event dedicated to this. It's called the Mushroom Summit. It's gonna be taking place alongside Psychedelic Science 2023 in June in Colorado. And it's all about functional mushrooms. I have talked about it on the show before because I'm gonna be speaking there on a panel, but there's also gonna be all sorts of other speakers and some really interesting topics. I really do think it's important for companies in an emerging industry to be able to get together, to solve problems, to set standards, and to ensure they're all properly stewarding these fantastic fungi into a new era of widespread use and adoption. Recently, I got to sit down with Del Jolly and Jessica Davis. They are co-chairs of this Mushroom Summit. We chatted about why they are so excited about functional mushrooms, some of the speakers and issues that they're very interested in talking about at the summit, but also why you should care about what's going on in functional mushrooms. Let's roll the clip. Dell and Jess, co-chairs of the Mushroom Summit, thank you so much for joining us today on The Mushroom Show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, very excited to talk to you guys. Now, the Mushroom Summit is a conference, not about psychedelics, but about functional mushrooms. And I would think, you know, not that long ago, the idea to have a conference or even a, a large gathering all about functional mushrooms would be kind of a crazy idea. But now, you know, it seems like mushrooms are mainstream. So I'd like, uh, maybe I'll start with you, Dell. Uh, you know, what is kind of the thesis behind the Mushroom Summit, and what made you think that now is the right time to have a whole event dedicated to something like Functional Mushrooms? Yeah, well, uh, Momentum Events, who's hosting the Psychedelic Science Conference in Denver at the Denver Convention Center, uh, they, they'd reached out to me for some of the work that we we're doing with Unlimited Sciences for speakers, and then the idea of saying, hey, what a great opportunity to start talking about Functional Mushrooms and just Functional Mushrooms at a conference uh, that's co-located uh, with MAP Psychedelic Science Conference in a way that just kind of felt really organic and, and the time is right. Tony, as you know, mushrooms are just absolutely booming. Uh, functional mushrooms are. And so it just kind of felt like uh, a good opportunity and time to start um, shaping the direction of where this industry could go and how it should shape up. So it felt right. Uh, I guess I'll throw this out to either of you. What do you think are some of the most important things that need to be kind of discussed or need to be explored in terms of, you know, setting the, the groundwork for this very important and emerging industry? Um, I think that the, the discussion about testing is very important right now. Being able to have a, a, a consistent way for not just consumers um, to build trust with consumers, but also 
the companies want to be honest and they want to put out the best products they possibly can. The different form factors, understanding, you know, where we should go as an industry with product itself, I think is important. Yeah, I'd like to definitely add corporate social responsibility. That's really at the heart of uh, where Umbo stands and kind of where we emerge from Unlimited Sciences, our psychedelic research nonprofit, a way of uh, generating conscious capitalism to give back to some of these um, organizations that I find to be really, really important for the cause. And mushrooms are such a unique um, being, if you will. And I think that they definitely warrant some give back. Um, I just think it's really important that the industry has a vision for what's the good that we could do outside of creating really good products. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, too, because I think most people that I meet in this industry, you know, really do understand the power of mushrooms and really do just want to be able to usher the best mushrooms in the world to people so that they can benefit from them. Right. Before we land this plane here, is there anything else that you want to add? Anything that we missed that you think people should know about uh, either the industry or the Mushroom Summit in general? I think that it's it's wonderful to support everyone in the industry. If if the industry does better as a whole and we if we all do better, there's going to be a larger industry. And that's that's honestly what I'm the most excited for for this summit. Again, the website is themushroomsummit.com. It is June 19th and 20th in Denver, Colorado at the Colorado Convention Center. So be sure to click the link in the description to go learn more about that. Dell, Jess, thank you so much for joining us today on The Mushroom Show. Thanks, Tony. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I couldn't agree more that functional mushrooms is a very exciting space to be involved in. I think that functional mushrooms are about to take the world by storm. And that's a topic we're always happy to chat about on The Mushroom Show. That about wraps it up for this episode of The Mushroom Show. Again, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for being here. I feel so privileged to be able to come on here every couple of weeks and chat about mushrooms and hang out with the mushroom community. So if you like mushrooms, if you like the mushroom show, go ahead and hit that like button. Also, if you want to see future episodes of the show, make sure you hit that subscribe button as well. We are so close to 400,000 subscribers, which is kind of blowing my mind right now, but it's very exciting to see the mushroom community grow. Finally, if you want to stay connected between shows, make sure you hit me up at FreshCapTony on Twitter. I'm there in between episodes doing research and just basically hanging out with the mushroom community. So be sure to follow me there at FreshCapTony. Thanks again for watching and we'll see you in the next episode.